Wonderful. Isn't it great to feel the presence of God in the room? We were praying that before we started today. This room would, you would just tangibly feel the presence of God. And it was great when we had a moment of open prayer, when just prayer came after prayer. Um, I was going to kind of do a bit of a debrief. If you don't know, I was in uh, Athens. Marion is still there. Marion Nell, I was there with Jane. We felt uh, it was important for us to go in response to the work we're doing with the Afghan uh, evacuees to join a thing called the Refugee Highway Partnership, which was focused on Afghanistan. I'll, I think we'll do a bit more feedback next week when Marion's back. But let me just tell you, it was, it was everything you guys prayed it would be. It was, it was challenging, it was deep, it was busy, it was uh, inspiring, it was also refreshing for Jane and I. In the middle of the, the, the very complex schedule of events, we also took a bit of time out just to re relax and enjoy uh, the Acropolis and things, and, and we had beautiful weather. Sorry about that, it was absolutely gorgeous. 15 degrees on Saturday, blue skies. Um, but, but just a few headlines, um, because I'll talk more next week. The, you know what, I'm going to tell you this, and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to say it with as much conviction as I can. I believe we are standing in a pivotal moment on the history of the earth for the spread of the gospel into the Muslim world. We are standing in the middle of a moment of dramatic, significant, history-shaking change that will be recorded in the history books because nations we could never reach have suddenly come to us. And we are hearing stunning stories of salvation, stunning stories of people coming to Christ, not by argument, not by persuasion, but by revelation of Jesus Christ. Seeing someone in their dreams, a man of light, and wondering who he is. Next thing they know, some Christian introduces them to Jesus. Having Bibles they were once given, they threw in the bottom of a cupboard, and just feeling, I need to, for some reason, read that thing and coming to Christ. These stories are thrilling and exciting and equally challenging in that part of the world. Um, but one of the most amazing moments was seeing an Iraqi, an Iranian, an Afghan, and a Greek link arms on stage and just declare the goodness of Jesus together. And then say, we are brothers, one in Christ. And we didn't realize till we got there some of the issues between those nations. Just seeing people pray together to Jesus Christ, we are one in Christ, was just incredible. And we pray it for the entire world. You can tell it was exciting. We'll say more uh, next week. I'm Andy, by the way, if you don't know, I'm one of the elders here. Um, so last week, Brian ran a workshop, didn't he? He got us all working in church. I mean, my words, didn't he just? Uh, based on a message, frankly, which was to, to really grow up. You know, so it was, a, it was a workshop by which we would grow up and mature. Hopefully you enjoyed it because I'm going to do it again today. Um, it's going to be another in our new two-week grow up series. Um, so... Um, and why do we need to grow up? Because you don't send five-year-olds into battles. You don't send ill-equipped children to fight in wars. Despite some of the issues with sending people too young in the past, you want to send the best army, they're the best trained, most equipped, ready-to-go, mature people. Not necessarily in, in age, but in mind. Okay, it doesn't matter how old you are in terms of battle you can be a, a veteran general who's incredible in battle and a 25 year old well-trained soldier incredible in battle it doesn't matter about age it's maturity of mind so today um we're going to chew on some meat we're not going to drink some milk if you're up for it you up for it yeah. good um because it's going to be quite heavy going and if you've heard me preach before once i get going there's a lot going to come at you Okay, so get ready for that. Let's just jump, go straight in there. All right, do you believe the devil exists? Yes. 
Okay, I'm just gonna I'm gonna pause on that for a second and, and just say, but do you believe that he exists? Just think about it for a moment because because it can sometimes be a question we ask very quickly, yes, but but do I really believe that he exists? There's a film, it's one of my all-time favorites. You'll have heard me mention it before. It's called Usual Suspects. And it has in this, this incredible line when they're talking about an enigma of a gang lord who's called Kaiser Sose that no one's really ever seen. And the reason they fear him and don't understand him is because no one's ever seen him. So they're not sure if he exists. So therefore they kind of ignore him and he comes up behind them and suddenly he causes havoc. And he says this line, the, this guy called uh, Verbal Kint says this line, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince people he did not exist. In other words, we go on through life and don't realize the devil is after us. The greatest trick he ever pulled is to convince people he didn't exist. That is actually lifted, probably paraphrased from a French literary figure. So it's not actually a line from a movie. It's from a guy called Charles Baudelaire who said something very similar and they picked it for the movie and said, to be honest with you, the greatest thing the devil could ever do is make people not think he even exists. And we don't recognize evil when it comes after us. So I know it's a loaded question, but I've said it before, but I'll say it one more time. Do you believe the devil exists? Yes. Hopefully you do. All right. Question number two. Do you think the devil is a he, an it, or a he? An it or a he? Does he have a mind? Schemes? A personality? So is he a he or is he an it? It's a he. Did someone say she? <laughs> Don't go there, okay? <laughs> when I say he, I mean he has a personality. He has things that he likes and things that he hates. He has things that he wants to happen. He has things that he doesn't want to happen. He has a purpose and he has schemes. So I want to submit to you, he's a he, backed up by a little bit of scripture. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The armor of God, the Ephesians 6 scripture that we all probably know in some regard, even if you're not a Christian, you've probably heard bits of it mentioned at something or other, is to protect you against the schemes of the devil. Because he has a mind, he's a he, not an it. And it's a bit interactive like last week, so I'm going to go for a minute or two longer. Okay, question number three. What does the devil enjoy? What does he like? Stealing? Keeping us down? What else? Lying? Lying? Accusing, the accuser of the brothers. What was that line? Yeah, a little bit of truth in the middle of a lie catches you right out. Division, separation, hiding. hiding. He also likes sin because he knows that it will separate us from God. Okay, those are the things the devil enjoys. Last thing then, last question. You're tired of all these questions you came to be preached at and you're being made to say things. What does the devil hate? What does he hate? 
how strong we can be in Christ. The blood of Christ setting us free. Truth, prayer, salvation, God being worshipped. Doesn't like worship. I like that song. Doesn't really do it for me. That's even a little area where the devil just loves to go. You know, you're here to be entertained, and you're not being entertained right now because you do your favourite song. Where's the keyboard player? Where's the big noise? I thought this morning was a wonderful time of worship, but for some of us, the devil's going, hmm, it's a bit kind of mellow for me. I want the rock band. That's the devil. That's the enemy, just whispering in your ear because it's nothing to do with the music in many regards. Bless him, he's an amazing guitarist and great cajon playing and wonderful vocals, but up there is what we're supposed to be saying. We're not singing along to a tune. What does the devil hate you doing? What does he not want you to use? We're going to go and use scripture to answer this. We're going to look at Ephesians 6. And I'm going to read this section to you, which we'll probably know quite well if you've been around church for a while. I'm reading for the NIV version. Ephesians 6, 10 to 19. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his, and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Jim, your back is your favorite scripture, yes? So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, and it has come, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Now, here comes the protection elements of the armor. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth. He hates truth. Buckled around your waist. With the breastplate of righteousness. The devil hates the fact you were made righteous by Jesus and his blood. With your feet fitted with the resinous that comes with the gospel. He hates the gospel spreading of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith. With which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, and then here comes the weapons. Here comes the weapons! Here comes the weapons! And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whatever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. We love the armor. We love the protection. But look at the weapons, the weapons of the word, the weapon of prayer, 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 prayer. It is a weapon. It is a weapon that we do not wield sufficiently. We have to admit it. We don't wield it as much as we could or definitely, in my case, should. We armor up that we might speak the word of God into dark places and that we might pray your kingdom come, pray your light into dark places. If you're going to pray that, someone's going to try and stop you because the devil exists and he is a he and he has schemes and things he hates and he hates you reading the word and he hates you praying. Do you find it hard to pray? Honestly, let's be honest, brothers and sisters. Do you find it hard to pray? Of course you do. Of 
course I do. I don't mean the occasional prayer. I mean persistent prayer. Not even prayer in a prayer meeting, which has a bit of a format to it. Consistent, persistent, genuine prayer where you feel like this is me connecting with God and we are together in what I'm praying. Because if you struggle with that, me too. So let me just quickly conclude. The devil is real. The devil is a he with minds and schemes. The devil hates you not just reading God's word, but using it. Jesus did. He used it against the devil when he accused him. He used the word against him. And the devil hates you praying. Because if we pray, that's the way we are called to pray. Our faith grows stronger. Our relationship with God deepens. We partner with God in his will. Lives get healed. Gospel spreads. Satan's demise gets closer and closer and closer because when the world is evangelized, that's his end. So the more the gospel spreads, the more the devil fears it because he doesn't want to end. And if you read Revelation, it's not a very nice ending. He gets thrown into a lake of fire. Not good. It's not a mystery. The devil does not want you to pray because it's not like a battle. It is a battle. Michael Eaton came to visit us at Christ First at X1 uh, years ago when we were meeting in uh, West Hearts College. Uh, Michael Eaton is a pastor of a huge church movement, or was, he passed away uh, about three years after he came to visit us in 2014. But he was part of a huge church movement in Nairobi, um, much celebrated leader, author, theologian. Um, and he immediately, when he got up to speak, said, do you struggle to pray? And he said, me too. I sympathize. He said, it's the toughest thing there ever was to pray. He went on to say, if you find prayer easy, you have probably never prayed in your life. That's challenging. If you find prayer easy, you've probably never prayed in your life because you go into a battle of prayer. You're wrestling with injustice. You're wrestling with things. So find it easy in that term. I, I want to be clear because you weren't there and you don't know perhaps my, who Michael is. He was not saying all prayer has to be tough. Any, any easy prayer is not a prayer at all. He was saying consistent, persistent, continuous prayer is tough. And if you find it easy, you're probably not praying in the way that you could. He said, if you've never had a battle and a struggle and a fight with prayer, then you probably don't know what prayer is. And then he said this, which is why it's so amazing. He said, prayer is you in all your weakness your sinfulness, your past, your smallest, just you standing in front of, a ho of the holy God of the universe. And if you don't find that amazing, you also don't know what prayer is. A truly challenging morning with him. Prayer is a weapon. Prayer is a fight against evil, against darkness, against pain on this earth, both personally for people we know, and globally for nations. It is an attempt to align with God, not an attempt, but a genuine ability to align with God and push back kingdom of darkness in people's personal lives and on a global scale. It's an amazing privilege to align with God and be able to pray in that battle. Richard Foster, who wrote a great book that lots of us uh, have read called Celebration um, of Discipline, 
he says it catapults us, prayer catapults us onto the frontier of spiritual life. And then he goes on to say this, in prayer, real prayer, we begin to think God's thoughts after him, to desire the things he desires, to love the things he loves, to will the things he wills. Progressively, we are taught in prayer to see things from his point of view. This is why the enemy does not want you praying, because the more you pray, the more you see God's will. The more you align with him, the more we understand what his will is. Because when we pray like that, you and I are a lethal weapon. We're the ones firing the fiery dart back. We're a lethal weapon. Okay, so in a real fight, in a real fight, genuine, not, not that you should be fighting too much, but if you're in a real fight and you come up against someone and they've got a knife or a club or maybe even a gun, let me ask you, in a que- let me ask you a question. What do you do? What's your best tactic besides running away? Praying, yes, but what would you do? Call the police? Duck? Try and grab the gun. Try and grab the knife. Try and disarm him. Try and get the weapon off him. This isn't a moment for have a go heroing, but to try and get the weapon off him. And I want to mention two tactics that the enemy chooses to upset your prayer life. One is the tactic to disarm. One of the enemy's key tactics is to take away prayer. Not make us bad at doing it, not make us bad at it, make us not do it at all. It's not about how good you are at prayer because Jesus is interceding with us. He'll fix the bad prayer if the heart is right, bad as in the, you know, didn't quite get the words out correctly. God knows your heart. He's not looking for eloquence. In fact, in Scripture, he often criticizes the overly eloquent prayer for the humble, simple prayer. This isn't about that. The idea here is to stop you from praying at all. There's a book called The Screwtape Letters, which I'm starting to go through, which is by C.S. Lewis. And he writes it uh, from a character called Screwtape. And Screwtape is um, a master tempter, a demon, but a master tempter. And it's like typical C.S. Lewis. It's written sort of from a perspective of a character that he creates. And Screwtape is advising a younger demon called Wormwood. And Wormwood is one of the typical tempting uh, junior demon who has assigned a person to continually mess with their Christian life. This is how he kind of creates the story around it. And they call that human being the patient. So Screwtape is advising Wormwood on how to mess up his patient. It's a really good read if you like C.S. Lewis. And um, in some regards, it's the Battle of Ephesians 6 kind of put into a story of this flesh and blood Nope, it's powers and principalities that's playing out in our lives. Um, And it's through the eyes of the devil, his servants and his tempters. But this is what it says in one of the Screwtape letters. After Screwtape rebukes Wormwood for trying to mess with someone's prayer life and it backfiring. He says, the guy's still praying. You were supposed to stop him. And he says, listen, there's a far better way. There's a far better way. Dear Wormwood, The best thing where it is possible is to keep the patient from the serious intention of prayer altogether. And one of the methods for doing this is to make prayer dry, boring, (coughs) lightweight, non-specific. He even uses the term spiritual. Like I know we might use that positively saying, make the prayer kind of 
loose and spiritual, not about anything in particular. He says, encourage him to be vague. Encourage him to be devoid of real situations and real people. And he finally says this, the vague prayer is exactly the prayer that we want. Because that type of prayer doesn't last. Prayer without purpose, prayer without focus on the desire of God's will, to come to a fight in prayer does require effort. And if we pray loosely, non-specifically, vaguely, that will dry up. Prayers that are not a conversation with God, the living God for real purpose, but a vague sense of duty. I'm supposed to do this because it says I should do this. It's going to be dry, boring, and lifeless. This makes the enemy very happy. But I want it to make us very angry. I want it to make you and me angry. That we know there are periods in our life when we think, I just don't pray. And I don't feel like I want to pray. And if I do pray, it's dry. It's boring. I don't want to go to those morning prayer meetings, those lunchtime prayer meetings, because it's dry and it's boring. I don't want to go to the Friday night prayer meeting because it's dry and it's boring. I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to feel angry. I want you to realize that that's God's great, one of his two greatest weapons for us to use, and we don't get to exercise it. And I could shower on guilt if I wanted to, but I'm not going to. I want you to be angry because the devil is playing with our minds to stop us wanting to pray. Hell forbid that you might start to pray and the gospel would advance. When we pray the advance of the gospel, we're pushing back the enemy's kingdom. It ushers in his demise. It ushers in the end. The moment we fix our eyes fully on God and his mission, you're starting to fight back against the kingdom of darkness and usher in the kingdom of light. The moment we align with God's heart for Afghanistan or Iran or Iraq, we are ushering the kingdom of life into nations where darkness has reigned. When you pray that, when you want to pray that, you are going into a fight against darkness and bringing in light. Naming people, naming places, naming individuals you care about who have life's struggles, you are bringing light into dark places and you are fighting back the darkness with God. When you pray for a friend who does not know Jesus, who's going through hardship, their life is full of pain, and you name them and you're specific about their needs. You are ushering in the kingdom of light into dark places. You are fighting for the souls of people and the hearts of nations. So we should not be surprised in the slightest when we don't feel like praying because that's what he wants. And I want us to be angry about it. We pray because others are lost, others are suffering, and sometimes we are too. All of this ushers in light over darkness. And John 1.5 says this, it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there's tactic number two, which came up in the prayer this morning as we were praying before the meeting. And Ali pretty much set it up for me today. Distraction. Screw tape goes on to say this. If this fails, if you fail to stop your patient from praying, 
If this fails, you must fall back on subtler misdirection of the, his intentions. Whenever they, Christians, are attending to the enemy, remember, the devil, so the enemy is God in his, this story. Whenever they are attending or thinking about the enemy himself, we are defeated. But there are ways of preventing him from doing so. The simplest is to turn their gaze from him towards themselves. This is a way of the devil getting us off battlefields and into spas and saunas. A tried and tested method that means that rather than thinking about God, thinking about his love, the desire for his kingdom of life to advance, we start focusing inwards on how tired we are, how busy we are, how skint we are, how sinful we are, how unworthy to be able to pray. Who are you to stand before God and pray? Now that's about me. That's not about him. That's about how I feel, not about the blood of Jesus that invites me back into the courtyards of the king to pray to God. When I say I'm not worthy, that's a self-centered response because by his blood you are made worthy. By his blood we are made righteous. By his blood we are allowed to walk right up to the presence of the creator of the universe. So the moment we say I'm not worthy, you're saying the blood isn't enough. No, the blood is enough. If you accept Jesus Christ, die for your sin, you are back into a relationship with God and he will hear your prayers because he's in relationship with you. And if the enemy can pull our gaze away from that, we get into this loop of self-thought. We're tired, we're not really good at praying, and it's a bit pointless and then we don't do it, so we just don't feel like doing it. And we're in this loop and now I'm not good enough because I never do it and I'm not very good at it and I shouldn't really be doing it, so why am I bothering? And we're in this loop, loop, loop. So we stop. We pray little. We no longer see prayer as a collaboration, but something we're not really into because we don't get anything out of it like we do from Netflix, FIFA, cheese and wine, Chinese food. It's a guilt cycle the enemy loves to bring in because it disarms us, yeah? It distracts us. We're now thinking about where we are and what we need. And then he thinks, God, job done, job done, fully distracted. I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to be angry. And I mean anger, righteous anger. I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to be annoyed. That that's the tactic he'll try on any one of us and all of us. One more listen to a line from Screwtape. He's warning Wormwood that God might respond if we start to pray. And that is bad news. He says, but of course, the enemy, again, that's God, will not be idle. <sighs> Whenever there is prayer, there is a danger of his own immediate action. <sighs> he pours out self-knowledge in quite shameless fashion. I'm going to get to prayer because you want to pray together. But if you're going to indulge, if you can indulge me for two minutes, I want to just focus in on immediate action. It's difficult to bring this because what we do is we tend to hear a story of prayer response. We think, well, now why didn't this happen? Why did that happen? I don't know. But this happened last night. Small, hopefully, testimony of types about immediate action. When God sometimes just shows you, look, I'm here. I'm just going to show you. There's things we're praying for are complex, but let me just show you. I'm here. So, I was prepping last night, 
And we came back home. Um, we've been in Greece, as I said. And we came back home, and I was prepping on the plane, prepping last night to get ready for today. Um, and while I'm prepping, Jane starts. My wife Jane starts to panic. I can. She's starting to panic, and she's rustling around as she does. And um, you see, when Jane goes through airport, we wonder sometimes if she had a metal limb because she always set off the metal detector. And we and and she realised that it's her bracelets. She has three gold bracelets that we bought when our daughter Jessica was born. And today is Jessica's 22nd birthday. So it was these bracelets that used to set off the alarm, we think. Um, yesterday she goes through and there's no beep. And I'm going through the one by the side of her. And she walks through and I walk through. And I go, no beep. And she says, yeah, I took my bracelets off. So, oh, okay, so we carry on. Then last night she realises they're not there. I forgot to pick them up in the airport. They wouldn't be anywhere else. We, we did the usual. I asked the stupid questions we always ask. Where was the last place you had them? You know, all that rubbish. <laughs> Tipping the bag out. I'm going through the bag. She's starting to, ah! Because I know for her, these aren't just three bracelets. This is a thing related to the birth of our daughter, and today would be her birthday. So I know she's getting upset. There's nowhere else they could have been. They were... There's no other place. They weren't on her wrist. They don't fall off her wrist. I went through her stuff, joined her in the distress. She goes upstairs to the bedroom. I can hear her calling the airport, no joy. While downstairs, I'm going through her bag for the third time. I'm thinking, Andy, you're writing a sermon on prayer. What are you doing? <laughs> so I'm praying, thinking, as my hand's in this bag, suddenly I'm going to feel metal. Surely I'm going to feel metal, but I don't. They're not there. Lift your arm up. She says, you won't believe this. I just looked down the floor and there are my feet in the bedroom. Now, we could go through hours of analysis. Is this a prayer experiment? We could go through, I'm just telling you, whoop, I'm just telling you. They weren't on a wrist. They weren't in the bag. Where on earth else were they going to be? They were in the airport. I'm convinced of it. And God returned them just to say, listen, I'm with you. I'm the God of immediate action. I'm also the God of you pray with me and something will happen over time. I'm here. I'm with you. Hopefully that meant something. It certainly did to us. I told Jane, I felt, I said to her, I just felt, I thought, what am I doing? Why am I not praying? And as I prayed, you called down and said, you won't believe this. about my feet. I believe that's a kickstart reminder for us as a church. God is listening. God is aware of our prayers, and sometimes there will be immediate action, and other times he's just going to, oh, he's going to keep revealing himself to those Christians. He's going to help us to grow. He's going to call us into missions that last years. Not everything happens immediately, but it's a reminder. If God is bothered to find some bracelets, how about he finds things more precious than gold? The lost souls of people. What Screwtape was telling Wormwood in that bit before was, if we get people to pray consistently, persistently focus on God, then he'll, he's going to reveal his heart for the nations. He's going to pour out himself and reveal himself in quite shameless fashion. The more we pray, the closer we get to God, the more we're going to learn about and the more we're going to feel like we're praying big stuff, important stuff, maybe for one person. 
or maybe for an entire nation. He's going to pour out his heart to you in a shameless fashion. Like just pour it out and reveal himself to us. Today was supposed to be a battle cry. A battle cry. I think it's probably a few weeks too late in this prayer series. I wish I prayed this at the beginning maybe, week two. Prayer is a weapon. A weapon against your friend who's suffering. A weapon against a town that's going backwards. A weapon against a nation that's falling. A weapon against the advance of false religions. A weapon against anything that you're struggling with. It pushes back and it pushes out and it kicks out, thank you Ben, kicks out darkness. And again we're praying this morning, thinking that's in my scripture, that's in my preach. Kicking out darkness and bringing in the kingdom of light. Today was supposed to be a wake-up call, a clarion call, not to pray because we feel like it, but because it's a weapon against the enemy. Final interactive question. Do you hate the enemy? I mean, we don't like using the word hate, do we? But in this context, do you hate what Satan does? I do. Would you like to hit him where it hurts? I do. I want to hit him where it hurts. Then why don't we pray? Why don't we pray? Don't know why it's just come to mind. So we were, I want to make sure we've got 10 minutes for prayer. We do. We were watching these guards at, there's a thing called the changing of the guard in the middle of Athens, which is the weirdest thing you've ever seen because they do this incredibly slow dance. It's really odd. They kind of, literally go like this and it takes forever as these two guards swap but the thing you notice most funny about them the dress is really funny they have these huge pom-poms on their shoes massive black pom-poms i mean like you know fluffy things and they said they have two purposes one is to keep their feet warm in the mountains the other is there's a knife in there and it will kick the enemy i feel like god wants you to kick the enemy I want God, I want, <laughs> I feel like God saying, listen, he doesn't know you've got that because he thinks he's taken it off you. I'm not going to say kick him where it hurts because that has a whole lot of connotations I'm not, I don't want to have, but, but let's stick it to the enemy by using the weapon of prayer against him. So we're going to allow ourselves. Now, if you're new to...